Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Conservative Historian Podcast. This one titled, The Seven Deadly Sins in Conservative Philosophy, July 2020. In looking at the history of marriage, writers seem so intent on describing the what that they often miss the why. A simple Google search of ancient marriages yields this progressive statement from media platform The Week. Quote, Marriage's primary purpose was to bind women to men and guarantee that a man's children were truly his biological heirs. Through marriage, a woman became a man's property. In ancient Greece's betrothal ceremony, a father would hand over his daughter with these words, I pledge my daughter for producing legitimate offspring, unquote. It is not in dispute that in marriage through the ages, women received a bad deal. It is telling that when physical strength and speed became less necessary in an information age, women's power increased. When plowing fields and fighting off enemies is the primary mode of survival, physical strength will rule as it did for the first 4,900 years of civilization. In an April 26, 2017 article in Thought Hub, Ph.D. Lloyd Uglu writes, quote, The ancient Greeks also preferred their young people to marry family members. Their reasons, however, seem to have been primarily economic. By marrying cousins or other relatives, farmland was kept in the family, and the clan never saw its ancestral lands end up in outsiders' hands. Unquote. But again, this assumes marriage is the primary social construct. But why this arrangement? Why not a mammalian-type organization with an alpha male ruling over several females? Why not free love, Woodstockian society in which partners are completely randomized? The reason is at the beginning of marriage, there is lust. Lust can be a negative to society, and it needed to be channeled, controlled, and focused. For a lack of a better term, Young people like very much to be in the biblical sense. And when this need, considered one of the seven deadly sins, is suppressed, bad things happen. It is well to have a summer of love mentality, but eventually people need to be bonded to each other. And mammalian structures do not work for humans. Bachelor lions will slink off to find prides of their own, but bachelor male humans will cause endless trouble. In the ancient Sumerian poem, the Epic of Gilgamesh, it was poor Shamad who had to tame the wild man in Kidu in just seven days. The problem with these structures is they do not properly channel, focus, a natural human, a natural animal inclination in a positive direction. The week goes on to state, quote, Greeks and Romans were free to satisfy their sexual urges with concubines, prostitutes, and even teenage male lovers. Well, their wives were required to stay at home and tend to the household, unquote. As with so much leftist dogma, this is skewing the reality. For one, the weak is cherry-picking. As represented in Hammurabi's code, Sumerians could drown adulterers, not just women, but men as well. Additionally, many peasants could not afford a continuous stream of concubines and prostitutes as their more well-to-do compatriots could do. This interpretation also discounts the Hebrew philosophies, much of which mimic earlier Sumerian concepts of marriage. In Genesis 24, verses 58 through 67, quote, And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will, unquote. 
This passage shows marriage to be a little bit more equal than suggested in the week. And in Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 through 12, quote, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. If they fall, one will lift up the other. But woe to one who is alone and falls and does not have another to help. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can we keep warm alone? Unquote. This Ecclesiastes quote really gets to the heart of the matter. The lying together, this is obviously the reference to lust, but yet it even goes beyond that, even beyond that natural inclination. Instead, what we have is, is the concept of two are better than one. And in that warm concept is one of the roots of marriage, in that or any other time. The survival of any species relies on its ability to procreate. Spiders are tiny but produce a multitude of offspring. Whales are enormous but can only produce one calf at a time, and their pregnancies can last well over a year. To survive, humans also had to procreate, but being creatures of cognitive intelligence could not exist as other mammals do, with alpha males driving out lesser bachelors. Better to create pairs of men and women and thus drive the natural need for procreation to a positive end, i.e. more humans. In this case, the deadly sin of lust is not discounted but channeled, controlled, and focused on a goal that benefits the species, more of itself. One of the more interesting concepts of marriage was is that it was a smart way to focus the needs of lust into a constructive focus by aligning the also nat natural inclination of pairing. Now, I can already hear the arguments. This statement is anti-gay. Quite the contrary. Marriage could exist in the same vein as to channel natural inclinations of lust into a productive structure. And when those unions adapt children and create better circumstances for those children, this is again doing the work not just for the betterment of society, but for the betterment of the entire species as well. Now let's look at another sin, that of greed. This is where capitalism comes in. Here's Bill Miller from Pathios.com. Quote, in human culture, a powerful example of a secondary reinforce is money. In and of itself, modern money is useless. Yet due to its perceived status as a universal claim ticket for goods, services, and experiences, it is commonly valued more highly than anything it can actually buy. Unquote. The acquisition of things, or the necessary tool to get things, money, is a part of the human condition as much as is lust. This piece is not praise for greed in and of itself. This piece is not an ode to the fictional Gordon Gecko of Wall Street fame who intoned that, quote, greed is good, unquote. Greed is no better than lust or sloth. Instead, as human beings, there are natural inclinations towards these behaviors, natural inclinations towards the acquisition of things. When these behaviors are subjugated, suppressed, or omitted, as with lust, stranger psychologies emerge. Now, greed, obviously, in and of itself, by its natural definition, gets a bit of a bad rap. According to Merriam-Webster, here is one definition. Quote, a selfish and excessive desire for more of something, such as money, than is needed. Unquote. Now, seriously, out of the 330 million Americans, how many are guilty of greed as is stated here? 
According to the Centers for Disease Control, 42% of Americans are either overweight or obese. Since this is the definition of more than needed, are 42% of Americans greedy? We spend $25 billion on streaming services. Is that needed? We spend $25 billion on designer tennis shoes from Nike et al. All right, and $30 billion on candy during Halloween. Are these things needed? Are they necessary? So the concept of greed as more than is necessary really doesn't cut it. So let's look at a different definition. Here is one from Hugh Weichel in a January 14th, 2013 piece from the Institute of Faith and Economic Works. Quote, New Testament Greek scholar William Barclay describes pleonexia, the word that is most commonly translated as green or covetousness in the New Testament, as an accursed love of having, which will pursue its interests with complete disregard for the rights of others and even for the considerations of common humanity. Unquote. Here's where we are getting to a better concept of greed and its pitfalls. The concept of more than enough is natural, but when greed drives people to do things in the violation or the complete disregard of rights for others, as Barclay would put it, then that is a negative. So how can we channel the natural inclination of acquisition of things in such a way that it isn't, if you will, harmful to the rights of others? This is where capitalism comes in. Capitalism provides a structure around which the natural inclinations of human to acquire is governed in such a way as that it will accrue benefits to both parties, but only within the context of a fair exchange. But is not acquisition itself, but is acquisition in and of itself greed? As economist Milton Friedman stated in a 1979 interview, quote, the world runs on individuals pursuing their separate interests. The record of history is absolutely crystal clear that there is no alternative way, so far discovered of improving many ordinary people that can hold a candle to the productive activities that are unleashed by a free enterprise system. Unquote. In his Capitalism and Freedom, Friedman states, quote, Fundamentally, there are only two ways in which the activities of a large number of people can be coordinated by central direction, which is the technique of the army and the totalitarian state and involves some people telling other people what to do, or by voluntary cooperation, which is the technique of the marketplace and arrangements involving voluntary exchange. The possibility of voluntary cooperation in its turn rests fundamentally on the proposition that both parties to an exchange can benefit from it. If it is voluntary and reasonably well-informed, the exchange will not occur unless both parties benefit from it, unquote. This is the fundamental uh, divergence between the concept of greed being a negative, of greed being something evil, of greed being a sin, and channeling that natural inclination to trade or voluntary exchange for the benefit of both parties. One of the critical differences between the national definition of greed and capitalism is, is that both parties benefit. Now in socialist society, the record is clear. 
The state benefits, the citizenry not so much. Additionally, political freedom, as encapsulated in documents such as the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Gettysburg Address, must precede economic freedom. Tsarist Russia, Imperial Japan, and Communist China all would claim economic freedom, but that is a chimera. Communist China's success lay not in channeling the natural inclination of greed, but rather of wrath, in selecting thriving industries to invest, pirating the intellectual material from companies doing business in the country, and creating disproportionate trading relations with its neighbors. China is not economically capitalist. It is faux capitalism disguised as socialism. And its system is neither free for its citizens, no, nor long-term sustainable once countries such as the United States stop playing their game. But where lust is channeled by marriage and greed is directed by capitalism, envy is channeled by socialism, but not to a good end. Bernie Sanders and many progressives use the nature of envy and, the, and even of wrath to draw comparisons between the wealthy and the poor. This has its roots in ancient history. Revolts ranging from the plebs against the patricians in 400 BCE Rome was about class envy. Sanders and his ilk like to draw comparisons between a billionaire and a person earning $75,000, talking about the system's unfairness, in other words, encouraging the envy of the one against the other. Two comparisons that one will never see Sanders make is the current status of a U.S. citizen today to the previous 4,950 years of civilization preceding our era. Nor does he make comparisons of our poorest people to the average of the world. In the United States, the average African-American family has a 2.5 times uh, level of wealth compared to an ordinary family's wealth worldwide. Wherever the politics of pure envy have been practiced, chaos and ruination have followed. In this case, they are not doing using that sin, if you will, of envy to try to channel it towards a better place, they are using it to channel towards a negative place. Examples include late 18th century France, 20th century Russia, 20th century China, 20th century Cuba, Zimbabwe, Angola, Mozambique, and 21st century Bolivia and Valenzuela. All of these countries have practiced the channeling of pure envy for negative means. Those who do not believe that Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, or Elizabeth Warren are not greedy in that negative sense are missing the nature of humanity. Though secretly they too are greedy for possessions, Bernie Sanders owns three homes after all, Warren made gobs of money as a corporate attorney, their real greed, or even lust, is for power and acclamation. They desire the power to enforce their vision and are greedy for the acclamation of crowds and admirers to praise their works. They are greedy for power. After all, why else become a politician instead of, let's say, a think tank policy wonk? As Friedman states, quote, Of course it is partly this market feature that leads many people to be opposed to it. Most people object to when they object to a free market because it is so hard for them to shape it to their own will. The market gives people what people want instead of what other people think they ought to want. At the bottom of many criticisms of the market 
the economy is a lack of belief in freedom itself. And this is the fundamental problem with the envy exhibited by progressives, socialists, and communists. Quote, there is no such fixed total, no law of conservation of power concerning economic power. You cannot very well have two presidents in a country, although you may have two separate countries. It is perfectly possible to have many additional millionaires, unquote, adds Friedman. The focus of the progressives is not to create the circumstances for additional economic opportunities. Instead, it is the desire to redistribute wealth from a group not in their coalition to one part of their constituency. Financial opportunities may exist outside of their control. Redistribution in the sheer exercise of power that this represents is well within their control. And finally, what of sloth? It is impossible to imply almost any sin, certainly sloth to a single group based on their identities, but one can use this moniker to an individual. It is why progressives fundamentally reject the concept of the individual. According to an April 28, 2020 article by Eric Morath, quote, roughly half of all U.S. workers stand to earn more in unemployment benefits than they did at their jobs before the, con- before the coronavirus pandemic shut down swaths of the U.S. economy a result of government relief that employers say is complicating plans to reopen businesses. The package of coronavirus stimulus laws Congress passed and President Trump signed in March included a $600 boost to weekly unemployment benefits through July 31st. That $600 boost was in addition to benefits they already got. As that support is added to state benefits over the coming weeks, the average weekly payment to a laid-off worker should rise to about $978 from the yearly $378 the Labor Department said was paid on average last year. The bigger issue will be trying to hire outsiders who are on employment. As the company needs to staff back up one representative of business, Mr. Sheets said, typically Sheets hires in the spring ahead of the summer travel season, but in this case... He said, hard to compete with an extra $600 per week for hourly jobs, unquote. Now, is everybody going to not work even when jobs are available, turn that money? No. Again, you can't identify single groups in that fashion. But will there be individuals who will fundamentally make that decision, who will fundamentally decide to put aside that thrift or desire to work? to embrace their slothful side of it, there will be individuals who do so. But to identify those individuals, to call them out, is not something that the progressives want. They look at people in terms of blocks. For many, if they can make a salary of a similar size without working, a lot of people choose not to work. Now, suppose that they can make more money working. In that case, Greed will trump sloth. The United States has many pillars of its success that are currently under siege. Over the past nine decades, the principles of limited government has been superseded by both major parties. The concept of liberty is under assault on campuses, in newsrooms, and even in boardrooms. But capitalism, the underlying economic driver of the largest economy for the past 150 years, in almost unprecedented accomplishment, is also being questioned. 
The Webster definition of greed is, quote, more than necessary, unquote. The far left's greed for more than the necessary exercise of power should be of paramount concern. That is the sin here. Thank you.